So we're contending for the faith here. Apologists, polemicists, theologians of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. So let me open in prayer and we'll get started with this. Uh, we'll continue and finish this topic this morning. Lord, I do thank you for the men and women who have gone before us, who've set an example, a model, of what it means to die for the faith. I pray, Lord, that we might learn from them, learn from their mistakes, learn from all the heresies that occurred back then, how they fought against such things, and stand strong in Christ today. We pray that you would give us the strength to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we looked at an apologist as someone who argues in defense of the faith. These aren't people just go around looking to argue. These are uh, folks who want to stand up for the faith and write things that help explain Christianity, that help someone see the truth of Christianity. But a polemicist is someone who offers arguments to undermine others' beliefs. So they'll, they'll be writing against paganism. Or they'll re- rebuke Christians who are in false teaching. So think of a polemicist as sort of going on the offense and an apologist as the defense. So we went through Justin Martyr. We went through um, Tatian last week, Athenagoras, Clement of Alexandria. And I mentioned to you that Clement of Alexandria uh, started or really popularized this allegorical view. And the allegorical view is still around today. The allegorical interpretation of a scripture is looking for something that's not obviously seen in the text. When we read the Bible, we're supposed to look at what the text says, and we're supposed to look at the grammar and the history and the context. But in allegory, you can pretty much do what you want with it. So you can see things and try to make your case for things that aren't even there. And this is still around today. We'll see it throughout church history as we study um, church history. Tertullian came up with the word trinity. Uh, He didn't come up with a theology He just took a Latin word, combined a couple of things uh, to make Trinitas, which now we know is Trinity. The theology of the Trinities in the Bible, they were just looking for a word in Latin to describe it. And so it stuck, and so we have Trinity today. And then we looked at the polemicists, so now we're on Irenaeus. So what is a polemicist again? um, They are one that is concerned with defending Christianity from external attacks. I'm sorry, that's apologists. A polemicist is going out and on the offense looking at others, looking at uh, issues inside the church, false teaching or pagan beliefs being brought in. So today, you're probably familiar with a lot of people who do polemics against Roman Catholicism. And they'll produce all these videos on YouTube showing how the Catholic belief isn't biblical. That's more polemical. They're not so much talking about what the Bible says, although that comes in, but they're sort of undermining and showing how the the Catholic faith isn't based on anything true, anything biblical. So early on here, we have this guy, Irenaeus, and he was uh, both an apologist and a polemicist, as these guys often were. But here, Irenaeus is famous for being the bishop or the head pastor there in Gaul, modern-day France. There was a a town still there, Lyon. And he was discipled by Polycarp. So he came from the east, and they needed a pastor out west, and what we call France today, known as Gaul back then. And being trained up by Polycarp, what better pastor would you want to ask to come lead the church than somebody who's so famous that they learned under Polycarp, who learned under the Apostle John. Now he aggressively attacked Gnosticism. You remember Gnosticism is this idea where you mix in all these pagan mystic ideas into Christianity. Just think of a Gnostic as a, a big bowl of soup, right? You, you put the meat in, that's Christianity. Then you put nasty stuff in like okra and um, what else do I not like? Lima beans. Um, you know, nasty stuff that makes it taste gross. Coffee instead of uh, broth or something. You know, it's, it's thinking that you can improve on the, the base part of it. Um, that's probably not the best. I, I think maybe smoking, I smoked some pork yesterday. So instead of putting seasoning and, and, and injecting it with stuff, it would be like, you know, putting uh, all the deer pellets in our yard on there and thinking we can improve the pork by doing that. That's, that's my definition of Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism is still very prominent, as I mentioned, uh, Mormonism and, and even parts of Roman Catholicism. It's sort of grabbing all this mystical stuff and throwing it into Christianity. And this was big back then, and it had to do with the secret knowledge. So in the Roman Empire, you would join the cults. Everybody was a pagan. You could worship whatever god you wanted. But to go into the mystery cults, only the people who joined, only the initiated, got to know the secrets of that cult. And even today, we, we don't even know. All the records were kept secretly and destroyed over time. We don't even know what some of these cults believe. Well, there were people who said that's how Christianity should be. That there's a higher level of Christianity than just the basic follower of Christ. We need to teach the secret things that no one else knows. And if you come join us, we have extra books that you can learn from. They're hidden books. Today we call them the Apocrypha, uh, referring to the Old Testament extra books. But there were also New Testament books that people wanted to add to Christianity early on. And they're called Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter, for example. The Gospel of uh, Thomas. That, that, that one got found a few years ago in Egypt, and that was big in the news. So Irenaeus was sick of this coming into the church. He stood up. You know, he did a strange fire type of thing, strange fire conference. Uh, he didn't do a conference, but you get the idea. He's defending the truth, the, the unity of God against all of these aeons in Gnostic teaching. Gnostics thought there were different gods. God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, the Creator God, the Demiurge, the aeons, almost as if they're worshiping demons, which was probably the case. So he used the theology of the Logos. We've seen that before. Logos is the, it just means word in Greek, but it also means matter, thing. And John uses it, the Apostle John uses it in the Gospel of John. And Justin Martyr took that argument and said, look, you guys have heard of the Logos, right? Because all Greeks were, were thinking about what is the Logos? What's the one thing in the universe that can unite all things? What's the one thing? And, and you see that even today in movies. And so, What's the one element that is the best of all elements in the universe. What's the key? Well, the Apostle John says it's Jesus Christ. He is the Logos. And, and that's also the word in Greek for word. He's the word. So these guys thought, well, we can use that and connect with unbelievers and, and help them understand. So Irenaeus was the first known Christian writer who also listed all four Gospels as divinely inspired. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were still around before Irenaeus. It's just not everybody sat down with paper and a pen, which is very expensive, and knew how to write, and said, oh, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right now, as far as things we have today, Irenaeus is the oldest when it comes to listing those out. He may have been responding to Marcion. You remember Marcion wanted to cut out the Old Testament. Marcion wanted to cut out most of the New Testament. So maybe he was writing against that as a polemicist there. Uh, he also wrote a famous work called Against Heresies. And he is really responding to Valentinius, who was a Gnostic in Rome, who sort of started his own church. He started his own movement. He said, I have a better Christianity. It's a, it's a Gnostic Christianity. Come and follow me. And so all of these writers were writing against him as he tried to make a following there in, in Rome. Listen to what Irenaeus has to say. I always like to quote from these guys, not to put you to sleep, but so we're actually hearing from them and just not about them. He says, We have received the disposition of our salvation by no others, but those by whom the gospel came to us, namely the apostles, which they then preached and afterwards by God's will delivered to us in the scriptures to be the pillar and ground of our faith. So how did the Bible come about? How did the gospel pass? Well, it passed by the apostles as they're preaching and teaching. And then they write things down. And those are now the scriptures that we go to to find the pillar and ground of our faith. Also, he says, The ancient tradition of the apostles is believing in one God, the creator of heaven and earth and all things therein, by means of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. So very early, we see this idea that Jesus is divine, that, that there's a Trinitarian God revealed in scripture. And that's going to become important, uh, important later as more heresies come about. Um, he says, Who, because of his surpassing love towards his creation, condescended, that means he, he came down, he lowered himself to be born of the virgin, 
He himself uniting man through himself to God. I mean, this is high Christology. This is going to be heard a bit in the sermon today as we look at some more verses in Romans 1. Uh, having suffered under Pontius Pilate, rising again, having been received up in splendor, shall come in glory the Savior of all those who are saved and the judge of those who are judged and sending into eternal fire those who transform the truth and despise his Father and his advent. So this is a doctrinal statement that we might have in our church today. We have much of this in our basic statement of faith. <clears throat> and Irenaeus is just writing against these heresies saying, here's the truth. You've got to know the truth before you can point out false teaching. And he says, here's what the Bible teaches, and we've heard it from the apostles who recorded it in Scripture, and that's where we go to learn true doctrine. And let me just explain what to, uh, true doctrine is. Because they didn't have a bookstore at the church where you could just go get a systematic theology. You know, who is Christ? And what, what do we need to know about his person and his work? Well, you didn't just go get MacArthur's biblical doctrine. You might have a Bible. You might have a, an epistle in your church that could be read that Paul sent and it was stored there for a while. And then you might have met this guy and heard his preaching Irenaeus or maybe you got a copy of his book. This is what they had early on to fight against bad doctrine. Next guy, Hippolytus. Hippolytus. That's a cool name, right? Hippolytus, 170 to 236. He was now uh, reportedly, and this is probably the case, a disciple of Irenaeus. Uh, he kind of looks cold in that statue, right? Like he's trying to cover up. We don't always know if this is what the guys look like. They're, they're painted and statues are made of them later on. Uh, he wrote polemical works against the pagans, the Jews, and the heretics. And so the most important of these polemical treatises is the refutation of all heresies. You see this theme over and over, against all heresies, refutation of all heresies. It was um, very common back then to have all these heresies sprouting up. And you don't just deal with one at a time. You just combine them all in one work and try to get that copied out to the churches. So he came into conflict with the church in Rome. And uh, we're not quite sure why exactly. Maybe because some of these heresies had gotten popular in the church in Rome. So they say, some people say, well, hey, we'll just make you the bishop of the church in Rome. We'll make you the head pastor of the church in Rome. And so later, Roman Catholics will look back and say, yep, they set this guy up as another pope. He's the first anti-pope. Now, we're going to see a lot in church history where there's, there's two or three popes. Uh, but they say this is the first guy who set himself up as another pope. The popes weren't called that. There's no name pope early on in church history. Pope just means father, by the way. Papa. And it, it's what they called the Bishop of Rome. Uh, when Hippolytus died as a martyr, he was killed for the faith. He did eventually get reconciled to the church there. So you can see a little church split in Rome, and then they're coming back together reconciling by the time Hippolytus dies. Uh, he wrote a lot more, but, but we, don't, we don't have most of them today. All right, two more. These aren't really uh, polemicists or apologists. They're just theologians. Theologians. Remember, anti-Nicene means before the Council of Nicaea. We'll probably get to the Council of Nicaea in a week or two. Big, huge event in the early church. But there's two more theologians we want to look at because of what they wrote, how much they wrote. Uh, one is Origen and the other Cyprian. Origen and Cyprian. Now, Origen wrote a lot. He's very prolific. We only have a portion of what he wrote, and, and he wrote a ton. Um, so there he is. He looks kind of serious. Again, this, this is a uh, drawing from the Reformation era, trying to say this is kind of what Origen might have looked like. But I've got to show you some pictures in here. You'll just get bored looking at all the paragraphs and words. Uh, Origen was a scholar, Christian scholar, theologian. He's not a pastor. He's not preaching every week. He's sitting with the books, and he's thinking, and he's writing, and he's one of the most distinguished fathers of the early church because of that. Uh, he was probably born at Alexandria and then later died in Caesarea. So because he spends much of his time in Alexandria, he's going to be influenced by Clement of Alexandria. And Clement is known for his allegorical interpretation. 
So you can imagine where Origen might go with a lot of the text in the Bible. He's influenced by Plato, Platonic thought, and an idealism in which material things are not that important, but spiritual things are. So Plato was the old philosopher in Greek uh, philosophy who said, the, the things that we can't see, that's more real than the things we can see. And the physical is not that important. The spiritual is way more important. And we have to be careful with that in Christianity because in one way that's true. We're supposed to think on the heavenly things. But remember, the ultimate heavenly things will be a physical resurrection. So matter in and of itself is not sinful. It's because we've tainted it with sin. Because of Adam's sin and all of our sin now, we are tainted And that has been there since Adam first sinned. But God made everything good. So if you force this like these guys did, you end up with some errors in your theology. Um, Origen taught at a school in Alexandria. So think of it as a seminary or maybe a Bible college. He's not the main preacher there, but he's the main theologian. And you come to study with Origen in Alexandria. He's a very prolific writer, respected scholar. And he'd been a student of Clement, as I said. He's generally credited with propagating and furthering the allegorical interpretation. I mentioned that. And his hermeneutic becomes a standard there. So for centuries, they're going to look back to Origen, look back to Clement on how to interpret the Bible. And that means they're going to come up with some weird doctrines. Um, Origen's generally credited with, with doing all of that, making it famous there. Uh, he wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. When you think of John MacArthur's New Testament set of commentaries, and that's take, it took him, what, 40 years? Now, he was preaching verse by verse. If you don't have to wait to preach a passage every week, uh, you could probably write commentaries faster. And his weren't as long as MacArthur's, but still every book of the Bible. Now, we only have a few today, but I remember as I was studying for Romans, there's a lot of people who say Origen was the first one to really document this view of, of a certain passage. And so often Origen is the, the first commentary. I, it probably was the first commentary on Romans since we haven't found anything earlier than his. More about him. Uh, his most famous work, De Principis, in Latin, was one of the earliest attempts to systemize doctrine. So he wrote all these commentaries, like John Calvin. He also wrote a doctrinal work. And he's trying to get more writings out there for Christians. And especially those who come and study under him there in Alexandria. But he's later called a heretic by two church councils. And we'll look at church councils later, what they mean. Uh, These later councils, not, not as big a deal as some of the earlier councils. But they did say, look, Origen is a heretic. And that's because his followers, known as the Originists, Kind of a cool name, right? How would you like to be an originist? It caused a lot of controversy. Often a man writes something down. He's just thinking out of his head. He probably shouldn't write certain things, but he does. Then his followers pick it up and run with it. And so that's what they did. They started spreading all of this. And some of his issues were he believed in the pre-existence of souls. So the Bible teaches that God creates the, the person, and the person is made up of body and soul. And that happens... At, we could say, at conception. Um, now we understand that. You know, earlier times, they would just say in the womb. But we know it happens at the moment of conception in the womb. And people like the Mormons believe that God creates the soul in eternity past somewhere. And it's setting in heaven. And the Mormons believe that God sends a soul down into the new body that he's creating. Well, that's what Origen believed. Not because of the Mormons. They weren't around yet. But maybe they go back and... Try to pick Origen as an early teacher. I doubt it, though. They don't like church history. So that was one of the problems, because that, that causes all kinds of issues. And also, he was a universalist. Universal salvation means he taught that everyone would eventually be saved. It didn't matter if you denied Christ. It didn't matter uh, that you sinned your whole life and then died without repentance. Uh, what he said is that everybody eventually would be saved. So those are false teachings. And so the, these councils said, don't follow Origen, don't, don't follow his works. And they probably ended up destroying a bunch early on because of that. 
So here's what the council said. If anyone does not anathematize, um, excommunicate all of these false teachers and their teachings from the church. So they, they make a list. Arius, we've talked about him. Eunomius, another false teacher. Macedonius, Apollinarius, Nestorius, Eutyches, or Eutyches, and Origen. As well as their impious writings, as also all the other heretics already condemned and anathematized by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Catholic just means worldwide universal church. It does, don't think Roman Catholic yet. It's not the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Uh, and by the aforesaid four holy synods. So there's already four meetings that happened called synods on this issue. If anyone does not equally excommunicate them, all those who have held and hold or who in their impiety persist in holding to the end the same opinion as those heretics just mentioned, let him be anathema. In other words, if you follow these guys with your theology, you should be kicked out of the church too because this is heresy, uh, what these guys taught. And so with Origen, not like you're probably going to pick it up and read it tonight for fun. But if you do, there's good and bad. It's not like every verse, every book that he wrote is heretical. He just had some, some strange heretical views that you need to be careful with. Any questions on Origen? Anybody stay up late at night reading Origen's works? No? It's not fun? What about Cyprian? Maybe y'all like him better. He's the bishop in Carthage, North Africa. And uh, that's a growing city in the Roman Empire. It becomes more and more important in the early church. He's converted in his 40s. And he really is an admirer of Tertullian. Tertullian's also from, uh, Tertullian is also from North Africa. And so Cyprian really likes his writings. He's the first Latin theologian writing in Latin. And so Cyprian says, look, Pastors of churches need to be celibate. Uh, they need to be poverty-stricken. And the church needs to be united. <clears throat> so the first two, not biblical. Unity of the church is important. Later, Cyprian is going to be persecuted and beheaded. Now, he is also a politician. So a lot of people don't like Cyprian. Anytime somebody mixes politics with their theology, they're often uh, cast as a bad guy. And, of course, we have to be careful with that. He's an administrator and a pastor. So um, we can't look at everything Cyprian said and say he really sat there and thought about it. He's just going through life and thinking about these things and writing them down. So here's the thing about Cyprian. He said the episcopacy, the, the way you structure pastors and bishops and whole areas. Um, and he also made an argument for authority of all of that structure. So we don't see denominations at this point. We don't see uh, a large structure. We just see respected pastors and elders of churches. Sometimes they write a letter to the other church. Hey, church in Rome. Hey, pastor in Rome. I know you've been there a while. Y'all have a very solid church. Can you help me? But people like Cyprian try to push that argument even a little further. So he said there should be absolute authority of the bishop. That's the, the pastor over the other elders. Remember, the elders start out equal in the New Testament. Ignatius says, well, that's a problem because what if they disagree? So now you've got to put the bishop up here and then the elders below him. And these bishops get more and more authority. And he says there's even... A, an argument that we can say the bishop received his authority from the apostles. If you know anything about the Roman Catholic theology, this is what the Pope still says today. There's a Pope in Rome because Peter passed it to the first Pope who passed it to the second Pope. All this authority gets passed all the way down. And so Cyprian is one of the earliest guys to start writing on that. Now, one of the major controversies that he faced was with regard to whether or not to restore the people who had denied the faith, the lapsi, those who denied the faith. Remember, we looked at them uh, last time. They denied the faith whenever persecution came. So persecution would come. The soldiers come into the church, to your house. They say, you need to bow down to the emperor. You need to say a prayer and offer a pinch of incense to sacrifice to the emperor. And really the emperor's didn't always care that much about it, but they did care about Christians being disruptive. And they thought, you know, these Christians, I don't like them because they won't do what I say. 
and they worship another god. And so they persecuted Christians for that reason. And when they came into your church, a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors would just say, okay, I'll do it, but tomorrow I'll repent. And so that became a problem in the church. They had lapsed in their faith. They were called lapsi in Latin. So in order to avoid being killed, uh, they sacrificed to the emperor. And then they received a libellus. You can think of it as a certificate that said, I've made my sacrifice to the emperor. Don't persecute me anymore. Next time the Roman soldiers come knocking on my door, I can just show them my certificate. Well, this made a lot of people really mad in the church because they stayed faithful. They lost loved ones. They lost their Bibles or whatever. And then there's this guy over here who's back in the church. And, you know, he's got a certificate saying he sacrificed to the emperor. So that causes, as you can imagine, a lot of disruption. Um, the interesting thing is Cyprian didn't like the people who lapsed, the people who um, gave in to persecution. But he himself ran away one time when persecution came. He left Carthage. But he said that's because God told him to. God told him to flee in a vision. So if God tells you to, that's fine. But if you just do it, he said, because persecution comes, that's not so good. So I think there's a little bit of humor in that. Um, that's, you know, often people want to apply all of this legalism to others, but they don't want to apply it to themselves. And so he made a, a vision, he said, happened. That's how I got out of it. So those who disagree with him on that issue set up a rival church. And uh, those, so Cyprian taught against letting the lapsed people come back in. And others said, we're not, agree we're not agreeing with you. We're going to set up another church. So they said, Fortunatus will be our leader in Carthage. The same thing was happening in Rome under Novation. But here's some, here's some good things he said. He said, um, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. He who gathers elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ, nor is there any other home to believers but the one church. Now, this is a very interesting statement about the mother and the father. Uh, if you have God as your father, then you have the church as your mother. It's very interesting because the Catholics use this today to say, if you're outside the Catholic church, you can't be a Christian. See, even Cyprian said that. But Calvin and the Reformers also quoted Cyprian and said, if you're a Christian, you should want to be in the church. I mean, that's, that's, that's your mother, not the leaders of the church, but the church body. Who can be a Christian and not want to be part of the church? Now, that's common today, but... In these early times, you are a Christian. You are a part of the church. There was no Christian at home by yourself, and you never went to church or were part of the church. So both Reformers and Catholics will use this later on. Um, he wrote against Novation's um, division. He said, Since the church alone has the living water and the power of baptizing and cleansing man, he who says that anyone can be baptized and sanctified by Novation must first show and teach that novation is in the church or presides over the church. So he's saying, look, you people want to split from the church and form your own faction, your own denomination. Um, first, you've got to prove that your leader is even qualified. Should, should your leader, this new pastor, novation, is he even qualified to lead the church? And so he's thinking about church authority. Who's qualified? So here's just a, a last slide, I think, on these guys. I don't know if you can see it that well. It's just a map I stole on where these people li uh, lived, these early 2nd and 3rd century fathers. We've got them spread all the way through uh, from modern-day France into um, Greece, into uh, Egypt today, and uh, North Africa. So they're all around the Mediterranean Empire. The green is the Roman Empire. So you're just getting an idea of how Christianity has spread. It's not only spread, and it's not only Christians and churches everywhere, but now there's theologians who are thinking about Scripture more deeply and writing out books, writing out books to be copied and shipped around the empire, not to make money. That's why a lot of people write books today. You didn't make much money on books back then, but to help Christians defend the faith. Questions on that before we go into the next set? No questions. All right. So now we're going to have some fun in looking at all the persecutions of the early church. You pick up a lot of church history books, they'll talk about persecution, they'll talk about early Roman persecutions, 
But I always like it when they cover things right through. Give me 10. Give me the 10 that happened before the Roman emperor said Christianity is legal. So there were 10 of them. But this is according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Oh, we still got some hands up. Excellent. Yeah, I've not read all of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a big book. Um, written right around the time of the Reformation. And he goes back and categorizes not only the, the martyrs of his day under Bloody Mary, but also all the way back to the early church. Now, the reason I say that is because Fox gets criticized today because today we do history a little differently. You've got to have all these sources. You've got to footnote everything. You need to prove that it actually existed or you can find it in other books. We can't do that with writings before modern times. So some of what Fox writes sounds a bit out there. You'll read some of the stuff and, and did this person have this vision? Is this real? Did this miracle actually happen in church history? Like they say, you don't know. It's, it's stories passed along. But we're pretty certain that these persecutions did happen and certain people that we have already studied died under each of these persecutions. So from Nero to Constantine, or Constantine, however you want to say it. Constantine is the big mark in the early church as far as legalizing Christianity. Constantine is the first Roman emperor who says, I'm a Christian, and we're not going to persecute Christians anymore. So at that point, persecution stops in the Roman Empire. It doesn't pick back up really until the Reformation. And then you have the reform splitting from the Catholics, and there's great persecution in the church. So there's the beautiful uh, picture, <laughs> modern drawing of Nero. Um, they took this statue, and there's a lot of statues that he had made of himself, and then they colorized it and put some freckles on him and some red hair, because he's supposed to have looked like that. Um, he just looks kind of dangerous and weird, and he was. He was very twisted. He was the sixth emperor of Rome. He's such a great guy. He murdered his mother, and he killed his first two wives. So he's not the kind of emperor that you would... I mean, we think sometimes our U.S. presidents are tough. I mean, this guy just outright does whatever he wants, and nobody can stop him. Uh, he ordered parts of Rome to be set on fire. Now, the rumor is that he did it to clear a spot for his new palace. Rome's very crowded. You might have remembered uh, when I started Romans, I said... There was 1 million to 4 million people, depending on how many slaves were there. So to have 1 million people today is crowded. You think of San Antonio. What's the greater San Antonio? 2 to 3 million, something like that, roughly, if you take all the suburbs. Well, imagine that all packed in downtown San Antonio. That's how Rome was. And so as it got built up over the years, the emperors would want to build a house. You don't want to necessarily build out in the country. You want to build on one of these nice hills in Rome. So the best way to do it is just let these apartments burn down. And the apartments were very cheaply made, made of wood. They were always burning up. So the story is he sent some of his guys out to light these fires, and it got out of hand. And they just kept burning and burning, and it burned a huge part of Rome. And you've even heard the saying, uh, Rome burned while Nero played his fiddle. Right? He was fiddling while Rome burned. And it becomes a proverb today of, you know, you can't just sit around and watch things fall apart. You've got to do something. Well, he's going to be in big trouble because all these people are going to be angry. And one thing you don't want to do as an emperor in Rome is make the populace mad. A million people banging at your door are going to kill you. And so he says, we'll blame the Christians because there's this new group. They've been fighting with the Jews as far as over doctrine. We don't understand what they believe, but they're really annoying We'll blame the Christians for the fire. They said it because they're disruptive. Remember, they don't like the emperor. They don't like order. All this rumor, gossip, things like that. So Nero starts the first empire-wide persecution. Now you read First Peter and there's persecution. You read other books of the New Testament and you get the sense that there is persecution. But it's very localized. It's a local ruler, or it's the Jews persecuting Christians in a certain city in Acts. It's not until Nero that the whole empire persecutes Christians. And even then, it's mostly in Rome, because it's all directed around Nero and what he wants to do. Later, you'll see the emperor send out 
groups and governors all over the empire who will then persecute uh, many more Christians. So there's a, a imagined artist's rendering of what we actually know his palace was laid out as. So he burned all this area so he can have the gardens, so he can have this golden palace, it was called, and he even built a man-made lake and then set up a permanent boat-like structure in the middle so he could go there and have picnics and enjoy his day on the lake right in the middle of the city of Rome. That's what he blamed the Christians for. You know, oh, it was the Christians' fault, but, you know, I'll make the best of it, right? When life gives you lemon, let's make some billion-dollar home. So you can go there today if they let you in. Sometimes they don't, but you can go underground and see. This is just one of the rooms in that house. Most of it was destroyed, but there are some pieces still underground. And you can just get the sense of how big one room is. This thing was huge. Look at it there. And then here's one room. So how did he persecute Christians? Well, since he was twisted, he said, let's sew them up in skins, animal skins, that have just been slaughtered. So let's slaughter a bear. We'll wrap the Christian in bear skin with all that blood. And then we'll let the dogs go at him. And the dogs would then eat, thinking, you know, it was a dead animal. And these dogs were very hungry. And the wild beasts, lions or whatever, would start to chew into the, into the um, skins and kill the Christians. And he said, well, you know what? If they want to burn Rome, like he said they did, then we'll burn them. Let's cover them in wax, put them up on a pole, and we'll light them up. And they can light up my garden. So he would have a dinner party, and then he'd have Christians stuck on a pole and light them on fire. Now today, liberal scholars will say, that's all made up, didn't really happen. Well, it did. I mean, we have more than just Fox's Book of Martyrs. We have early Roman historians who are secular writing that these crazy things happen. Um, so who was martyred during this persecution? Well, a few people you might have heard of, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Uh, not all Christians died the skin of wild, you know, being sewn up, sewn up in the skin of wild beasts or on a pike. Uh, Paul was beheaded, supposedly beheaded. Uh, they took him up to a hill outside of Rome. They beheaded him. Today, that's where the Vatican is. Um, Peter was crucified upside down. They took him to what's called the Hippodrome, which is the chariot races, uh, basically a racetrack. And this is where they persecuted Christians early on, before the Colosseum was built. So they took Peter there, and they're going to crucify some Christians. And Peter, supposedly, he says, I'd rather be crucified upside down, please, because I don't want to be like my Lord and crucified in the same way. I don't deserve that. And so they would, they flipped him over and crucified him. So here's a later artist rendering. You've got the people on fire in the background there, in the Hippodrome, Christians. And then you've got this group huddled here. They've just released the lions. They would open these trap doors underneath the sand, and then the lions would come out. These lions were hungry. They had been sort of uh, worked up to be very vicious, and they would let them out to attack Christians, and then the spectators would cheer this. So it was just part of the games. It was like going to watch a football game to them. And then they could watch a chariot race afterwards. So here we have... Uh, a supposed rendering of Nero's garden. And you can see on the far right how they would wrap them in this moss or peat and then they would light them up. My everybody watched. So that was the first persecution. Uh, that's kind of around where most of the New Testament ends. Only the Apostle John survives much later. Um, but Paul's and Peter's life ends under Nero. The second one, second persecution... So there's 10 of them total. The second one's under Domitian in 81 AD. And Domitian is also known for his cruelty. And he killed his own brother. He put to death Roman senators to take their land. He commanded all the line of David to be put to death. Why would he do that? Because there's this talk of a king that's come or will come from this man named David. So he says, he finds out and, and he says something like, Hey, I own that territory that David lived in. And all the people that came from David are still there. Let's search them out and kill them. Now, I think this is the only record of that happening under Domitian. I don't 
I don't know if it's somewhere else. You could, you could look that up. But I think it's interesting because so many passages, as we'll see in today's sermon, tie Christ back to the line of David. And here's Domitian, so worried, so concerned that somebody's going to take away his emperorship, first from the Romans themselves trying to take it from him, other people. But then he has to go outside of even that and go to the Jewish area and start killing everybody who's descended from David. So he made a law. He said, Domitian said, that no Christian once brought before the tribunal <clears throat> should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. So don't go search for, this is how persecution worked early. Don't go search out a Christian, but once they're brought before the judge, don't let them off the hook. They need to be punished unless they renounce their religion. So don't think of early, this, this point anyway, they're coming to your door, knocking on the door. No, someone turns you in. You know, your neighbor turns you in. You know, there's a COVID lockdown and you got out and you went to the store, right? And neighbors, think of it more like that. A um, little bit more serious, obviously. Uh, they're going to turn you in. You're going to go before the tribunal, the judge, and they're going to convict you for being a Christian. If famine, pestilence, or earthquakes afflicted any Roman province, guess whose fault it is? He learned from Nero on this one. Because when, when these things happen, guess who was to blame? If something bad happens in our country, like the economy or whatever, who, who gets the blame? Sometimes it's justified. The president. It's his fault. No matter what, right? Things go well. Things, things go well. It's not to put on him. Things go bad. It's always his fault. Well, even more so in the Roman Empire. And by this time, they're starting to think of themselves as gods. So the people thought, hey, you're supposed to be a god. You're ruling over this country. And why is there a famine? Why is, why is there a disease? And he says, I got the solution. It's the Christians' fault. It's their fault. So when any Christians were brought before magistrates, the judges, mayors, um, they would get a test oath proposed. And if they refused to take it, death was pronounced against them. If they confessed themselves Christians, the sentence was the same. So here, just read the statement. All you have to do is read the statement. Say that you're a follower of the emperor, that you're not a Christian. If they said no thanks, they were killed. If they just showed up and said, I'm a Christian, they were killed. So this is the emperor that uh, John was sent to Patmos during one of Domitian's persecutions. So his very first one starts in 81, but it goes on up until about 100 AD, somewhere around that time frame. So in the 90s, uh, John is suffering under one of these. Uh, so he's sent to the island of Patmos. Many martyrs died under Domitian. Uh, a famous one, Dionysus, supposedly. The Areopagite mentioned in Acts 17. You remember when Paul goes to the Areopagus in Athens and he preaches? And there's only two people mentioned that believe. And this is one of them. The church history says later he becomes the pastor there, Dionysus. And He's killed under this persecution. Also, supposedly Timothy is in AD 97. He's clubbed to death in Ephesus for rebuking a pagan feast. So the Timothy that First and Second Timothy are written to, the story goes that he, he sees a parade of all of these pagan gods marching down the street. He's the pastor there in Ephesus. The church is growing. And I don't know what inflamed him. Maybe he saw some of his own church members out there in this parade. I don't know. He runs up and tries to stop the parade and pull the stuff down and they just got clubs and, and beat him to death. Third persecution. Very uplifting, right? Persecution. This person died and this person died. How many people died for the faith just before Constantine? How many? We'll never know, I guess. Maybe we'll know in heaven. But The third persecution under Trajan. So now we're in 108, and the Romans and of that day, historians of that day, and historians today count Trajan as one of the five good emperors. So from Nero and, and many emperors after that, things are just crazy. You'll get a new emperor every year, sometimes every few months, as a new one marches into Rome with his army and conquers the old one. The, the guard of the emperor, the Praetorian guards, are killing the emperors and taking power and giving it to somebody else. And the country's just sick of it. They're going back into civil war 
Finally, you get five good emperors because they rule a long time. There's peace. The problem is he's not all that good because he persecutes Christians. If you read um, Dante's Purgatory, he finds um, Trajan there. So even a pagan like Trajan, according to some medieval theologians even uh, and writers like Dante, even a virtuous pagan could somehow burn off his sins in purgatory and eventually get to heaven. So Trajan is seen as a good emperor, not like Nero, which everybody agrees he was a bad emperor. So here's what a governor, Pliny the Younger, he wrote some other writings, so people who know Roman history know Pliny the Younger. But he's serving under Trajan, and all of these letters that they wrote, or not all of them, but some of them about Christians, have survived. So Pliny the Younger, he saw the lamentable slaughter of Christians and moved therewith to pity, wrote to Trajan, certifying him that there were many thousands of them daily put to death, of which none did anything contrary to the Roman laws worthy of persecution. So Pliny is trying to be a good governor. And he says, all of these Christians are being put to death. Is this, is this the right thing to do? So Trajan, that, that's according to Fox. We actually have the letters that Pliny and Trajan wrote. Trajan tells Pliny, continue persecuting Christians, but do not accept anonymous denunciations in the interest of justice, as well as the spirit of the age. So what happens is you don't like your neighbor. You just go to the governor, Pliny, and say, hey, he's a Christian. And then your neighbor gets killed and you can take his land, right? It's going to be sold for a good price. Trajan says, look, don't do that. Don't, don't accept an anonymous denunciation. It's got to be proven. Non-citizens admit to being a Christian and they don't recant. They are to be executed. So there's no trial. If they say they're a Christian and they won't turn away from that, they're killed. Citizens, though, like we're going to see or we have seen in Acts, right? What happens when Paul says, I'm a citizen? They can't kill him in Judea. They ship him off to the emperor. So citizens have uh, benefits. They have an ability to go to Rome and be put on trial. And that's what happened with uh, Paul a few, two times at least. Here's what Pliny wrote. The whole account they gave of their crime or error, whichever it is to be called. So he says, look, I don't know if this is a crime or just a mistake. But it amounted to this. They were accustomed on a stated day to meet before daylight. That's Sunday, the Lord's Day. And to repeat together a set form of prayer to Christ as a God. And to bind themselves by an obligation. Not indeed to commit wickedness. So Pliny says, here's what they did. They just gathered together and, and worshiped Christ as God. So he's writing to Trajan trying to inform him of what the Christians are like. Because he doesn't know what to do. And on the contrary, they never commit theft. They don't rob people. They don't commit adultery. Never to falsify their word. Never to defraud any man. After which it was their custom to separate and reassemble to partake in common of a harmless meal. So even Pliny is wondering, what's the big deal here? We've got these Christians. The biggest crime on that list to the Roman is that they worship Christ as God. The rest of it seems pretty harmless even to Romans of the time. They're just eating a meal, praying. But we do find, just in this writing, that the church is meeting regularly. They're meeting on Sunday. Sometimes today it's very common for people to say, you know, the early church didn't even meet. They were persecuted. They were scattered. It's no big deal if you stay home by yourself. You can do Christianity all the time by yourself. It wasn't like that in the early church. They say, well, that's not true because we have accounts very early like this outside of Scripture, but Scripture is enough to tell us to meet regularly. All right, third persecution. Uh, who was killed? Ignatius. You remember we studied Ignatius a few weeks ago? Bishop of Antioch. Martyred in the arena by lions. So Ignatius was a, a follower of the apostles. The third Christian persecution continued. So it didn't just stop with uh, Domitian. It continues on. Are we on Domitian? Sorry. Trajan, sorry. From Trajan into the next emperor, which is Hadrian, another good emperor. And many Christian leaders were martyred during this time, including the Bishop of Rome, the pastor there in Rome, two deacons in Rome, and some whole Christian families. So where's persecution the worst? It's in Rome. Where's the last place you want to go at this time as a Christian? To Rome. Because that's where the emperors 
that's where he's most concerned about insurrection, rebellion. And these Christians are very rebellious in his mind because they won't follow him. Remember, religion and the state are tied together until 1600s, until the Reformation, and even past that. So don't think like we do today back then. Why couldn't they just leave the Christians alone? They're just a different religion. That's not how it worked. To be a different religion means that you're not wanting to be Roman. Today it would sort of be like if somebody came into our country and says, I don't want to learn English. I don't want to get any driver's license. I don't even want the government to know who I am. And then suddenly, you know, that person's getting blamed for maybe a crime. What do we do? Um, That's how the Romans thought of Christians back then. Uh, A couple that I want to mention, Faustina, Faustinus, and Jovita. They were brothers and citizens of Brescia. And their torments, Fox's Book of Martyrs says, their torments were so many. Their patience so great that another man, Calacarius, a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in a kind of ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians for which he was apprehended and suffered a similar fate. So here's a pagan watching this saying, wow, this is amazing. These people can suffer so much torture for their faith. Maybe their God is great. Great great is their God. You know, maybe he gets converted there and then they, they throw him on and kill him as well. They finally stopped uh, when an emperor came along, Antoninus Pius. And it's rumored in history books that he might have been a Christian, this emperor. He didn't, he didn't stay on the throne very long. But it's thought that uh, maybe, maybe he, he had some Christian, not, not maybe a convert, but just some Christian. Um, he, he was willing to let people go and not persecute them. Um, it's thought that maybe Justin Martyr wrote to him his first apology. All right, let's go to Marcus Aurelius, the fourth persecution. So this is the fourth one. Now things are starting to heat up empire-wide. It's not just in Rome. Marcus Aurelius hardly was ever in Rome. He was always marching out with the armies. Right? This is the guy in um, the movie Gladiator, right? the old man. If you all have seen that movie. It's a very bloody movie, but... Uh, Marcus Aurelius, great philosopher. He writes all these philosophical writings. He's the philosopher king that Plato always imagined would come about. Everybody pretty much respected Marcus Aurelius. He's the last of the five good emperors. And uh, it's said about him, a man of nature more stern and severe. And although in study of philosophy and in civil government, no less commendable. So Fox says, this is a great guy when it comes to worldly things yet towards the Christians, sharp and fierce, by whom was moved the fourth persecution. And that wasn't because of his son. You know, in the movie, who's seen Gladiator, the movie? You don't want to admit it, a few of you guys? I used to love that movie. Before I was a Christian, it's still okay. It's just, it's got some some bloody moments. Um, In the movie, he passes it to his son who's kind of crazy and that's true in real life. It didn't happen exactly like the movie. And it would make sense if his crazy son persecuted Christians. But here's this uh, stately philosopher who wants to persecute Christians. Why? Well, here's what Fox says. The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight. And they were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc. upon their points. Others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. So Fox has a way of writing that you know, makes it sound severe. And I, I think it really was. We don't know if exactly these things happened. But these are the kinds of things that did happen early on to Christians as they were persecuting. Who died under this martyrdom? Um, Polycarp, which is probably one of the most famous of the early martyrs. Justin Martyr. Uh, a woman named Blandina or Blandina. And there's some writings uh, out there in church history that talk about uh, what she said and how she died. And then this one that I'll quote, Sanctus. Sanctus probably wasn't his name. It just means holy in Latin. So we look back and 
we see how he died and we call him Sanctus. But the, here's why we don't know his name. He was, a, he was a deacon in Vienna. So Vienna is a city in Italy, um, very close to Rome. So if they're going to persecute Christians in Rome, that's the first place. Then they're going to branch out to um, the whole state, Italy, and then they'll go out to the whole empire as far as levels of persecution. Uh, Sanctus also nobly endured all the excessive and superhuman tortures. So he's getting tortured, and he's enduring it, which man could possibly devise against him. For the wicked hoped, on account of the uh, continuance and greatness of the tortures, to hear him confess some of the unlawful practices. You Christians, y'all must be wicked. You must do these wicked things in private. We're going to torture you till you confess. But he opposed them with such firmness that he did not tell them even his own name, nor that of his nation or city, nor if he were a slave or free. I mean, these are just basic things. It would be like today. Where do you live? What's your address? What's your social security number? He said, no, I'm not telling you any of that. I'm not telling you if I'm a slave or a free man. All he said in Latin is, I'm a Christian. That's it. This was a confession he made repeatedly. Instead of giving his name, his city, his race, or indeed in reply to every question that was put to him, he just kept saying, I am a Christian. And finally, they, they gave up trying to get information from him and killed him. So, uplifting day, how to have a wonderful life. This is the kind of thing prosperity gospel churches never talk about. Fifth persecution. And we'll, we'll get through this in the end here today. Uh, it started with this emperor named Severus in 192. So Severus sounds like a very severe name. Uh, Severus was a great general. He went out and expanded uh, the empire and got back some of the territories that had been lost. The problem was he decided he wanted to persecute Christians. So Severus, having been recovered from a severe fit of sickness by a Christian, became a great favor of the Christians in general. So he had somebody who helped him recover, maybe a physician, maybe just somebody who took care of him one time. And so he says, well, these Christians, maybe they're not so bad, but the prejudice and fury of the ignorant multitude prevailing. So the people are saying, persecute Christians, we're tired of them. Obsolete laws, so old laws against Christians, were put in execution against the Christians. The progress of Christianity alarmed the pagans, and they revived the stale calumny of placing accidental misfortunes to the account of its professors. So that's Reformation-type language in English there. Uh, they're just saying there were some old laws on the books under previous emperors, and each emperor could decide. It's sort of like, uh, what do they call them today with the president? Executive orders. You can kind of decide if you want to keep those or get rid of those. Well, it was more so in the Roman Empire. And the people pushed him to bring some of those back into effect and persecute Christians. Uh, but though persecuting malice rage, yet the gospel shone with resplendent brightness and firm as an impregnable rock withstood the attacks of its boisterous enemies with success. Tertullian, who lived in this age, informs us that if the Christians had collectively withdrawn themselves from the Roman territories, the empire would have been greatly depopulated. So this tells you how many Christians there are by this point. By 192, there's so many Christians that a writer in that day, or a little bit later, said if all the Christians left, the empire would be greatly reduced in number of citizens. It's becoming more and more popular, Christianity is. Not popular in the bad way, but in the, in the good sense that it's spreading. Who was killed here? Again, uh, all the pastors in Rome. So if you want to die in this time, you just be, go be a bishop in Rome. Um, Victor, Callistus, Urban, Origen's father in Alexandria, Leonidas. And that's part of Origen's testimony is that his father got killed for being a Christian. And so he investigated what his father believed. Irenaeus that we just covered, he was the bishop all the way out in Lyon. And he died around 200. The persecution now went to Africa. Many more were martyred in that quarter of the globe, the most particular of whom we shall mention. And he goes on to mention, there's a couple of women here, Perpetua and Felicitas. I don't remember which one's pregnant. They, they take her in. They don't want to kill her because she's pregnant. Uh, she doesn't get to see her husband. Um, eventually she has the baby, and then they, they do kill her. I don't remember if they gave the baby to the husband or not. Okay, we'll end there and come back to talk about this guy with the cool name. Maximus Thrax.
sounds like a Marvel character, doesn't it? Maximus Thrax. Uh, so we're only on the sixth persecution. We're already at 200 years almost. Yeah, 200 years of persecuting Christians. 200 years of people dying for the faith. And we're scared to just tell somebody about Jesus. And here these people are, you know, the whole world is against them. All right, next week we'll pick up with this uh, very encouraging. It is encouraging in a sense. I, I make light of it, but it is encouraging because they died for the faith. And so let's remember that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can even sit here and learn about church history. There are many uh, people around the world right now that uh, they can't meet for this long without persecution. Uh, They don't have time or ability because of persecution to go over church history. We pray for them. Uh, We pray that they would stay strong, that they would still meet for the worship of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would Uh, Bring about justice upon the earth. Bring about justice to these governments who are so unjust at times against Christians. Give us peace amidst all trials. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.